you guys doing well? Good to have you with us. So how many guys have gals up on the mountain this weekend, up on the women's retreat? Show of hands, show of hands. Okay, there's about 120 ladies up there. And so uh, show your, uh, raise your hands again. So there's just a few in this service. Yeah, it looks like your clothes match. Okay. And that's a... Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, where are the kids? How come you didn't bring the kids this morning? You left them at home, didn't you? You forgot all about them. And so, uh, yeah, my wife uh, set my clothes out for me. So how do I do? How do I look? Do I look okay? Okay. I'm a little frazzled, though. Other than that, uh, I'll be glad to get my, my bride back. We've been praying that God would uh, have really, truly a spiritual renewal while they're away and come home safe and sound. And so we'll be excited to get them back. There's about 120 of them up there. So I know that they're having a fantastic weekend. And uh, we are working our way through this study, this study through Romans 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Romans 8 has been like an oasis in the hot Arizona desert. This has been a wonderful study in More Than Conquerors, Facing Your Accusers, the title of this weekend's message, the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8. We'll be looking at verses 33 and 34, 33 and 34. Take a look at your sermon notes also, part of that intro. These truths in Romans 8, 1 through 30, what we've already covered, are so immeasurably spectacular that we will struggle to really believe them. So Paul ends the chapter, we talked about this last week, he ends the chapter, verses 31 through 34, with five questions of relentless, intense gospel logic to beat us out of our disbelief. That's his point. That's what he's trying to do. So why does Paul seem to be piling on here? That's what I would call it, just kind of relentlessly coming after us. Why, why does he seem to be doing this? Because we are not prone to believe these immeasurably spectacular promises. For instance, for instance, you can tell by the way you live that you don't really believe all things work together for your good. Just look at your life. Let me ask you this. That's Romans 8, 28. That's just one of the many truths that we've studied thus far in this teaching. And uh, so if you just look at your life, let me ask you this question. Did you murmur this week? Did you complain this week? Did you get depressed or discouraged this week? Then you don't believe, you don't believe Romans 8.28 like you really should. Romans 8.28, for we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so that's why he's doing what he's doing. He's trying to drive this, these truths home, deep in our heart, to transform our lives. Five unanswerable questions. I've got them on your notes. Once again, the foundation of faith is thinking. And so are you afraid? You're not thinking out the implications of God's power. If God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah, verse 31. Are you worried? You aren't thinking out the implications of God's generosity. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? That's what he's talking about. That's verse 32. Now, we're going to be looking at verses 33 and 34. Are you feeling guilty? You aren't thinking about God's pardon. You're not thinking out the implications of God's pardon. Verse 33, are you feeling condemned? You aren't thinking about Christ's work. That's verse 34. And then we're going to end the series next weekend talking about Christ's love. Are you feeling forsaken? You aren't thinking out the implications of Christ's love. And so that's where we're headed. You can see we're going to answer two questions. Who are your accusers? And then what is your cure? He gives us absolutely wonderful insight uh, for our lives. But uh, before we look at this text and unpack these notes, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Father God, Psalm 32 tells us that the happiest people in the world are those who not only know they need to be deeply forgiven 
but also have experienced it. And as great as our sins are, it is a great and an additional sin to refuse to rest in your grace and accept your pardon for our sins and embrace fully our new identity as your dearly loved children. So teach us, teach us how to face our accusers with the cure of you lavishing us with all the acceptance, security, significance we'll ever need through the costly and indispensable love of your son on the cross for us, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said... Amen. So take a look at this. These, I've, I've been still writing three by five cards. I'm going to probably keep doing this for quite some time. I don't have it all down, but boy, this has been some sweet stuff. Really great verses. I'd encourage you to do it. Begin to memorize and meditate uh, on these verses. But Romans 8.33, it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you would be classified in that er- that. Uh, that group, God's elect, and he says, it is God who justifies. Let me just paraphrase this, so that might sound like, what does that mean? Well, this is what it means. Okay, you didn't get the raise, you didn't get the promotion, you got people in your job, or maybe even in your home that reject you, have betrayed you, have hurt you, people have said unkind things about you, whatever it might be, whatever you're facing, whatever obstacle, whatever accusations are coming your way, he's just saying that's nothing compared to the fact that God justifies you. You have all the acceptance, security, significance you'll ever need in him. That's what it's saying. This is more than enough. How many have ever had someone say some bad things about you? Probably everybody, huh? Yeah. Absolutely. False accusations. Or, or just betrayal, or, or any number of things. People just don't like you. They despise you. You ever had people do that to you? Yeah, of course you have. He's saying, are you kidding me? Right here. It is God who justifies. And then he goes, verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Are you kidding me? He died for you. More than that, and he's not gonna stop there, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Wow! Unbelievable. It almost seems like it just keeps getting better week in and week out. I mean, for me, it does. I don't know about you. Is it? I, I mean, I think it's pretty powerful stuff. And it's just, all of it's, it's all good. It's all good. So who are your accusers? So we need to do some defining of terms here and really understand guilt and shame. So who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 33a. So guilt, that's your first fill in the blank. Guilt is being troubled over what you have done. So that's what guilt is. We've got to define guilt. Guilt, what is guilt? Guilt is being troubled over what you've done. Notice verse 34a. Who is to condemn, who is to condemn, so let's define shame, because I think he's talking about shames. So guilt is being troubled over what you have done. Shame, next fill in the blank, shame is being troubled over who you are. So guilt, troubled over what you've done. Shame, being troubled over who you are. You feel guilty for yelling at your children. You feel shame for being a bad parent. Does that make sense? You can see how those work together. So you feel guilty for lying to your friend. You feel shame for being a bad friend. You feel guilty for living beyond your means. You feel shame for not being a good steward of what God has given you. Guilt and shame are are closely related, often becoming a confused jumble of painful emotions. 
Now, here's the issue with this is that you've got to, most of us, by the way, let me just say this, that most of us are not, most Americans, I should say, and a lot of Christians are not in touch with their guilt and shame, what's going on inside of them, the turmoil. And we tend to medicate that, and we, cha- you know, we run after other things to try to medicate all of that. And so unresolved guilt and shame will lead to hiding and hurling. That's your next fill in the blank. Hiding and hurling. Hurling sounds like throwing up, doesn't it? It's not throwing up, okay? I put those H words because I think they're helpful to remember. This is back when we studied Genesis 3. And so the first thing that Adam and Eve did when they were alienated from God is they they did what? They hid in the garden. They were meant to, we were created to walk in the garden in the cool of the day to enjoy the presence of God, to have relationship with him and to receive from him all that we would need but but that spiritual alienation immediately created a psychological alienation and we go into hiding. Because you've got this guilt and shame going on. We don't have the acceptance, security, significance we need so we go into hiding and then when God came into the garden said, where are you? And then they come out from hiding and, and they say things like, well, we, were, we recognized we were naked and why did you know that you were naked? Because we ate from the tree. And uh, why did you eat from the tree? And he's talking to Adam here and starts asking him these questions. And what does Adam do after he comes out from hiding? The very first thing that he does, he says, the wife, the wife, the woman you gave me, that's why this whole situation happened. And I'm thinking, some of you think that's biblical and you're going to write that on your notes right now. Oh, <laughs> praise God. Now I know who's the cause of all of my problems. <laughs> praise God. And so, so, you know, that's why I've been praying like crazy that somehow my wife would have spiritual renewal take place up there this weekend because I'll tell you what, you have no idea what I have to put up with. And if, and if you could, <laughs> I'm talking some major trash. She's not here this weekend. <laughs> And I hope that she doesn't listen to this. But I could use a lot of support here this morning. But, but, but you know, this would be a great marriage, honey, if, if you could just get your act together. What do you guys think of that? See, that's what we typically do. Don't we do that? It doesn't work, though, does it? I did that for like two, three decades. I mean, seriously, I did it for quite a while. Because I was very holier-than-thou, self-righteous, and I played that game. I didn't realize I was falling prey to that, and I wasn't dealing with my guilt and shame and recognizing my own alienation from God and, and working on that. I was, I was desperate. I was messed up. Fortunately, she said, it's not my fault. Deal with it, dude. You know, she, just, she told me straight up. And so what we typically do is that we blame. So when we come out from hiding... And by the way, this is what drives addictions, OCD issues, phobias... We all have addictions, by the way. You know, a lot of times people say, well, I have kind of this uh, addictive, be- you know, uh, uh, addictive tendencies. Well, guess what? We all do. We really do. We, always, we all tend to either eat too much or sleep too much or play too much or watch too much TV or any number of things. And why would we do that? It's because when we lack this balance in our life, it's because we're, trying to, we're, we're not in touch with our guilt and shame, troubled over what we've done or troubled over who we are, our spiritual alienation, and we're trying to fill the void inside of us some way. Or we try to mask that in some way. And so we, what do we do? We blame our chromosomes. Just why, that's how I'm wired up. Or we blame our circumstances. Or we blame our conditioning. I mean, if you guys had any idea, if you guys had any idea how... My parents just put my diaper on way too tight when I was a kid. <laughs> and you guys... 
That's not very funny. That's why I act out the way I act out. Because my diaper was just way too tight. That's a wonder I even survived. That diaper was so tight, and if I could have said something, but later on they found out and nearly killed me. And uh, Okay, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? And, and we come up with kind of bogus answers like that, but there are serious answers. All I'm saying is that these, all of these things, chromosome circumstances, conditioning, can influence us, but they do not control us. And there's even, there are some bad conditioning and bad circumstances that can happen to us, but praise God, he can bring freedom to our lives through the gospel. But, and, and at some point, we've got to quit using that as an excuse and then move on beyond that and say, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that did happen to me. Yeah, I'm pretty damaged. Oh, but thank God for his grace. Does that make sense? So, we, so we've got to do that. So unresolved guilt and shame will lead to hiding and hurling, hiding mask wearing and then hurling blame, blaming, nursing, cursing, rehearsing our issues. And so let me just say this real quick, that there's five levels of, of intimacy as you start uh, cultivating intimacy in relationships, and it should happen in marriage relationships, but this also should happen in our small groups. Life change happens best in small groups. That's what we say here at Desert Breeze. That's why we encourage you to get plugged into the connection party there and, and go to that. But five levels. The first one's cliche conversation. That's one level of communication that we can have, cliche conversation. Hey, how you doing? Fine, thanks. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. Very superficial, doesn't take much trust there. The next level, takes a little bit more trust, would be uh, facts. You begin to share facts. Hey, this weather, this is nice when it rains. Yeah, it is pretty nice. Yeah, oh, I love it. Whatever, that's that next level. The third level is more of opinions, giving your opinion. Like, oh my goodness, this election cycle this time is just crazy. I don't know who to vote for. In fact, I don't even want to vote for either one of those two. You guys kind of feel like that? I probably shouldn't even have said that, should I? Yeah, you guys thinking, feeling the same way? It's like, what the world is going on? This is just a reflection of, our, of the culture that we live in, American society. It's going down the tubes fast. And so that kind of gives you the heart of American culture and society. If you haven't looked, notice, uh, noticed lately, and that's, a, I shouldn't have diverted into that, but, but I'm trying to make a point here. We start giving our opinions, and that's all the further we get. But what we need to do is go to a much deeper level than cliche conversation, facts, and opinions. We've got to get down to feelings and needs. And so there should be that exchange, not only in marriage relationships, but in friendships, but also in small groups where we're able to share our struggles with one another. And we get real about our guilt and shame. I'm troubled over what I've done. I'm troubled over who I am. I'm troubled over what I've experienced in my life, and I need help. Because we're all there, and we all need that. And uh, let me ask you this question. Who could I go to that could tell me what your feelings and needs, your struggles have been over the past few weeks? Who could I go to? And they'd say, oh yeah, this is what they're feeling, this is what they're needing. So you ought to be able to go to my wife and talk to, to her about me and me about, about her, about what's going on in our life. But even more than that, you ought to be able to go outside her and be able to talk to a few guys that I hang with that they could, because I'm opening up to them and they're opening up to me and there's that level of connection with feelings and needs and the struggles that we're working through. Otherwise, you're hiding that's what's keeping you from connecting at that deep level, hiding, and there's going to be probably some hurling, and that becomes a wall that keeps you away and keeps you from being healed. Listen to me. There's no healing in hiding. There's no healing whatsoever in hiding, and we all need to be healed. And that's the struggle that he's bringing up here and wanting us to understand. And so Genesis 2:18, it's not good for you to be alone. You can't do life alone. Genesis 2.18. So you need, the, you need an environment where there's truth, love, 
And then you need to do that over time, and then that develops the trust, and, and in that, it brings phenomenal healing. And so, uh, so who are your accusers? That's a little bit on the guilt and shame and understanding that uh, etiology within our hearts and how that works out. But let's talk about uh, our accusers here. And here's uh, the first one is conscience. That's your fill in the blank on your notes. Conscience. We talk about our accusers. First Timothy 1.19, he says, holding faith, this is on your notes, by the way, holding faith in a good conscience. I like that it goes together there. That's, that's not by accident. Holding faith would be uh, a set of beliefs. You need to have a, an objective set of beliefs, a standard by which you're living, living out your life by, and you need to calibrate your conscience to that. So holding faith in a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So if you don't have an objective standard that you live by, such as God's word, and if you're not calibrating your conscience to that standard from time to time, you're gonna crash and burn. You're gonna listen to the lies from your accusers or other people in your life, and it's gonna really work on you. Now, let's, let me give you some definitions because we need to know the difference between true guilt and false guilt. There's true guilt and false guilt. These were meant to be fill in the blanks, but when I sent it into the, the printer, I forgot to keep those words out of there. So what I want you to do is just circle the, that word. So true guilt is the fact, circle that word. True guilt is the fact with or without the feelings. So what does that mean? So that means, have I violated, so this is the question you ask. When you have this turmoil inside, troubled over what you've done, you feel that, and you also maybe have some shame, you're, you're troubled over who you are, the question you need to ask yourself is, have I violated a clear statement or command of God's word? So have I violated a clear statement or command of God's word? Now, I've had people say this to me, that... Uh, I would point it out and say, well, that's a violation of what the Bible says here. What you said and what you did to them is totally wrong. And, uh, and I've heard people say, well, I don't feel guilty. I don't feel bad about it. I go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you feel bad about it or not. The Bible says you, what you did was wrong. And so that's why you always go back to this objective standard because you guys know this, feelings come and go. And so it's like a crazy roller coaster ride. You're going to go based on your feelings? That's a crazy roller coaster ride. That's messed up. But you're going to go based on the objective truth of God's word. And so true guilt is the fact with or without the feelings. But false guilt is the feelings, circle that word, is the feelings without the fact. So you can actually have this turmoil, troubled over what you've done, troubled over who you are, and yet you can't put your finger on any clear statement or command of God's word that you have violated. You can't see where, I can't see this. I, in fact, you've even talked to some people or to a counselor, and they go, no, it sounds like you're, you know, you're in the clear, you're, you're responding appropriately here, and, but you can't do that. Now, why would we have those kind of feelings? Well, growing up in an environment of constant criticism, or abuse, or neglect, or conflict, or being told that something was wrong with you over and over again. That can create these feelings, this, this turmoil within you. Also, unresolved past hurt, betrayal, divorce, sexual assault, any of these things. They can create this this turmoil, being troubled over what you've done, troubled over who you are, but you can't put your finger on it, but it's because uh, your perpetrator has put that on you. You've been hurt in some way, and now you're wearing that, you're feeling that, you're experiencing that. And so it's, 
So this whole idea of our conscience is a whole lot like a smoke detector. I've got this on your notes. Like a smoke detector, your conscience can be oversensitive or insensitive and needs calibration by God's word. So when I was a firefighter, we'd go on calls, fire calls, fight some fire, and then what was interesting is that when you'd go into a, a house and the house pretty much burned down, and there the fire alarm, that is the smoke detector, was still intact. What's up with that? I mean, that doesn't look right. And you'd, you know, of course, you'd ask, did you hear, did you hear anything? No. Well, your smoke detector is totally worthless. Everybody, you guys have smoke detectors in your home? You better make sure that you got good batteries. They're totally worthless if, if, they're, if they don't. They don't have batteries and they're not plugged into the electricity and then they can warn you. And so you, you can be totally insensitive. And I see this. I see this happening in American culture today in a lot of people's lives. Their lives, their homes are burning down and no fire alarm is going off within them. They're gonna crash and burn and they are crashing and burning but they have no conscience, no sense of conscience. And uh, Judges 21-25, remember when we went through the study of Judges? That was, a, that was an amazing study a year ago. And the whole book could be summarized in Judges 21-25. Remember how it said? It said that there was no king in Israel, no objective, uh, clear statement or command, God's word. They weren't living by God's word. No king in Israel, and therefore everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's American culture. That's where we're headed. And... Uh, and so we kind of, uh, we, we, we make up our own rules as we go, and, and that's unbelievably destructive. And so that's a fire alarm that's not working, but then you can have a fire alarm that just goes off with the slightest little thing. You got a smoke detector, and, and how, many, how many ladies here in the house, or, or even guys, that you, uh, that you cook, when you cook, the, the smoke detector goes off every time you cook. You need to start cooking a little better than that, okay? You're, that, you're a horrible cook. Okay. If, if you set off the smoke detector, how many of you ever had the smoke detector go off while you're cooking? Yes. Oh, that's horrible. You can cook better than that. So what is that? Oh, so the food's not burnt? So maybe it's just the hypersensitive smoke detector. How many are saying it's a hypersensitive smoke detector regardless of how the food looks? <laughs> regardless how the food looks. I know it looks burnt, but it's just the, the, the smoke detector is just hypersensitive. So you can actually have a hypersensitive smoke detector, and I know people, and I, I know Christians, and I was kind of raised in an environment where I had this hypersensitive smoke detector. It's like, you know, I was just like, ah, slightest little thing, and, and so that can happen. That can also happen in your life, but, but let me talk to you a little bit. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about really understanding and making sure that we calibrate our conscience to God's word regularly, but this is what he says. He says, sin hardens the heart. Every sin makes room for another sin, and it is always easier to sin again after you have sinned once. So, so you can actually sin and do something very bad, think bad thoughts, do bad things, and at first the conscience is like, oh, you shouldn't have done that, but if you keep doing it over time, you're gonna dull the conscience. By the way, there's another verse here, it's 1 Timothy 4.2, and I never really understood that. It, it says that these people have a conscience that has, it's as if it has been seared with an hot iron. 
How many are familiar with that verse where it says that? It's, it's 1 Timothy 4.2. A conscience that has been seared with a hot iron. I thought about that and as a firefighter. There's three degrees to burns. First degree is uh, sunburn. Second degree is blisters. Third degree, ee, that's terrible. He's talking third degree burns. Third degree burns is where it actually destroys the nerve endings where you have no sensitivity anymore. That's what he's talking about there. You can actually get to the point, and that's where you get into this extreme. When you push that to extreme, you've got these pathological liars, pathological crazy people that just like, that's where that term is just like, they can do it, and it doesn't even bother them in the least bit. And, uh, and so that's, that's important, that we calibrate our conscience to God's word. And so here's the dilemma that I have as a pastor. Uh, John Owen puts it very clearly. He says, there are two great pastoral problems. One is to convince the unconverted that they are sinners. The other is to convince Christians that they are in union and communion with Jesus Christ and that their sin is forgiven. So I, I've got to try to pull that off in one service. I have to try to convince people that, uh, that if they're not believers in Jesus Christ, your sin is keeping you from God, but those that have committed their life to Christ, hey, he has forgiven you of your sins. He loves you. You have union and communion with him. That's important. Now, that's conscious. Next one is wrong concept of God. This can be also in that category of who are your accusers. And, and all of us go to one of these extremes these two wrong concepts of God. The first one is liberalism. And liberalism, by the way, there's a lot of liberal churches here in the valley, a lot of churches. And you can go to their website and actually look, and it looks pretty decent. But as you start hearing their teaching regularly, God accepts me, therefore I don't have to obey God, kind of. It's called antinomianism is really what it is, anti-law. And basically, it goes something like this. Yes, you should obey, but in the end, God loves and accepts everybody. Love is reality, and law is secondary. Law is conditional. This is a love minus truth, which would be liberalism. And you, over time, if you go to church like that, you become insensitive to sin. Because they don't talk much about sin. We don't talk about sin here. Don't want to talk about sin. There's, there's major, big leading pastors on the radio that say that, actually. Oh, we don't talk about sin. It's like... Sounds like liberalism to me. Sounds like you're, you're, you're hurting the folks rather than helping them. The other extreme would be legalism. I obey, therefore God accepts me. So liberalism, God accepts me, therefore I don't have to obey. I can kind of live however I want to live. That's antinomianism. But legalism, I obey, therefore God accepts me. And it goes something like this. Yes, God is very loving, but in the end you've got to obey or he won't accept you. And so law is reality and love is secondary, it's conditional. So this is a truth minus love Truth minus love equals legalism. It's, you become oversensitive, oversensitive to sin. But the gospel is not either one of those. So those are the two wrong concepts of God, and that's going to cause you to be insensitive or oversensitive to sin. But the gospel says, puts it this way, God accepts me, God accepts me, therefore I want to obey. You guys tracking with me? So this is the gospel, this is grace, love plus truth equals liberty. There's not a greater liberty than what is found in the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Galatians 5, 1 through 15, we went through that study uh, less than a year ago through the book of Galatians and we got to this uh, chapter, this verse. You can still go online and listen to these messages. And what he says here in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. 
yoke of slavery can be legalism or liberalism. It can be legalism or liberalism. So here's, here's your next point. I want you to circle these key words. We take sin seriously. Circle that word. We take sin seriously because Jesus died for our sins. So our sins are pretty serious, seriously against the Creator. We, we sin against the Creator, and so Jesus died for our sins. So we take sin seriously because Jesus died for our sins, but we don't wallow in our guilt because Jesus died for our sins. So circle the word wallow, circle the word seriously, circle those two words. So 1 John 1 night, if we, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we all struggle, there's struggles in our life with sin. If I were to talk with you and you're in, in union, communion with Christ, there are going to be things that he's pointing out in your life to realign with God's word. That's part of the recalibration of your conscience to God. And so to deny that, you're not in touch with the reality of what God's wanting to do is he's bringing wholeness and holiness to you. And he does that in a very loving way under the conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he loves us. And it's just ludicrous to think that we would live outside of his standard, his objective standard of his God's word. I mean, listen, isn't he a lot smarter than you? And I know he's smarter than me, but he's a whole lot smarter than both of us. And so in his love, in his perfect love and infinite wisdom, he's given us a standard to live by, but we don't have to live by that standard to have acceptance from him. We have acceptance, therefore we want to live by that standard because he empowers us with his presence. We want to honor him. We do that out of our love for him and wanting to live for his glory. And by the way, whatever, whatever you give up, whatever you have to give up to follow him is nothing compared to what you gain in knowing him. It's a no-brainer. It's actually a no-brainer. When you begin to go, oh, what do you, what do you want me to do, God? Oh, I'm doing too much of this and I'm, I'm, it's kind of leading my heart away from you. Man, I don't want anything to interfere with my relationship with you. Yes, yes, I'm gonna get rid of that so I can follow you and know you and experience you because knowing you, you satisfy the deepest longing in my soul. Of course, of course I wanna do that. See, that's, that's the work of grace. That's the gospel working in your life. So you take sin seriously. Jesus died, but you don't wallow in your guilt because Jesus died for your sins. And so that's part of it. Listen to what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says. He says, Christ did not love you for your good works. Christ did not love you for your good works. They were not the cause of his beginning to love you. So he does not love you for your good works even now. They are not the cause of his continuing to love you. He loves you because he loves you. Now listen to me. He doesn't love you because you are lovable and loving. He loves you in order to make you lovable and loving. Does, it, does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with me there? I mean, that's important to understand. It starts, so if I'm acting out in real bad ways, I gotta come back to his love. There's something missing in my life, and, and it's his love. It's understanding who I am in him and what I have in him and all he's done for me. That's what I got to do. I got to get back to that. I don't, I don't try to muster up more strength and try, try harder and, and try to... You're not living in the reality of what you have in Jesus. You're not living Romans 8. You don't realize, man, it, it might be a concept. It's not a reality because if it was, believe me, why would you want to chase after the things in this world? You're not going to find your happiness in this world. You're going to find it in Him. It just makes sense. It's basic logic, basic gospel logic. We talked a little bit about it last weekend. 
And so here's the third one is the accuser. So you got, as we look at who are your accusers, you've got conscience, wrong concept of God, and then you've got the accuser, Satan. He's our adversary. Revelation 12.10 says, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. That hasn't happened yet, but that will happen. And... Um, but notice what it says, who accuses them day and night before God. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 says that, he says, be self-controlled and alert for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's coming after you. He's coming after you. Uh, Zechariah 3, 1 really gives us a, a great picture of his accusations, but Satan is always here. Satan is always here. He visits Desert Breeze every weekend. He typically, he typically comes in late and sits in the back. <laughs> and he especially loves the breezeway. All you folks in the breezeway? Sorry, I had to do that. Satan doesn't control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. We're always looking for the devil. Guess what? He's lying to you. That's, that's the big thing. He makes these charges. And by the way, if he can't get you to question God's existence, then he'll get you to question God's goodness. This is why we are overwhelmed by life's suffering and trials because we're questioning God's goodness. How could this happen to me? If God loves me, then why am I experiencing this? What is this all about? Oh my goodness. So he's getting you to question God's goodness and suffering and that's why we get overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed in direct proportion to that not, we're not living, we're not believing his goodness because believe me, if you believed his goodness, if you believe that God is for you and not against you, you're gonna have the resources you need to get through suffering. But if you question God's goodness in that, he's got you, he's coming after you. And he also gets you to question God's goodness when it comes to temptation because oftentimes we give in to temptation. We're overtaken by temptation in direct proportion to the fact that we don't believe in his goodness because we think we're gonna be happier by chasing after whatever it is we're chasing after as opposed to pursuing him and making him and putting him at the center of our lives. And so uh, that's where he works. So he comes and he whispers in our ear, you can't be a Christian if you've done that. You call yourself a Christian? Look what you've done. You can't be a Christian if that's been done to you. People that have a lot of shame from uh, abuse or uh, of some form or fashion, oftentimes, and I've heard them, they've, they've said that, they stay away from God because of that, because of the hurt that they have there. And that's the enemy uh, whispering into their ear, you can't be a Christian if, if that's been done to you. You call yourself a Christian and you have, you have thoughts like that? You call yourself a Christian and you act like that? A lot of good, that Bible study, that devotional you did this morning, did you? You're like out of control right now. You call yourself, this is how it comes to me, you call yourself the pastor of Desert Breeze Community Church and you act like that? And of course, I, I respond by saying, yeah, if you think that's bad, you should see how those people that I'm leading act. <laughs> okay. But that doesn't score me very many points, so I usually don't use that. I don't use that one because, it's like, because, because we're all like... 
the playing field in front of the cross is pretty level, okay? It's like, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all struggle. We all struggle in, in many ways. And he comes like this too. Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Nobody cares. And this is what I found really interesting is that a lot of times when people go through suffering or difficulty or have a major crash and burn uh, morally, why do people run the other way? Why do people run the other way? Why do people isolate and, and, and not want to be around others? And I understand there's kind of a grieving time sometimes when you've really taken a big hit, but man, you ought to be running into the arms of your Savior and running into the arms of a few close friends who can love you and they can let you bleed all over them as they bandage you up and, and fix your wounds. And, and that's, you need that, but there's the enemy, the enemy wants you to isolate because he's got you. You're not gonna have the support and then he can feed you more lies. That's how he works. And so, C.S. Lewis says, Satan's strategy is to get Christians to become preoccupied with their failures and from then on the battle is won. So he whispers in your ear and makes you think that God is reluctant in his love for you and he doesn't love you as much as you'd like to think he loves you and God is given to fits of moodiness and favoritism. You're not, he just, he's relentless. You're not worthy to be a child of God. And I've even heard people have said, well, man, if I came to church, the walls would come down or the roof would fall in on me. How many have ever heard people say that statement? So what are they saying? They've got, they've got guilt and shame, and they don't understand the gospel. That's what it is. They should be even more so running into the... No, if, if, if it would have fallen in on us, it would have fallen in on us a long time, because I'm here, okay? I would have been the one that brought it down on us, okay? Sorry, but that's just how it is. And I need Jesus as much as you need Jesus, and so that's part of it. Unresolved guilt and shame are emotional terrorists holding us hostage to the past harassing us in the present and hindering our future potential. Some of you were raised in homes where you never received any encouragement, only criticism. Man, I feel so bad for you. But you can get beyond that. And because of that, it has made you bitter, critical, even doubtful. And I want you to hear these sweet, tender, and healing words from your Savior. If you could hear these, it would bring amazing healing to your life. Some of you were raised in, uh, were in, in such a way, because of that, you, you, you are an approval junkie. You are so desperate to have people affirm you and to approve of you. And, and you find yourself running into stupid relationships and do you do stupid things because it's all about getting that approval. You're always looking for that approval and it makes, makes you terribly needy and creates problems in your relationships because you see, the security of Jesus' love, when you live in the reality of the security of Jesus' love, you need less and love more. But when you're not living in the re reality of his approval of you, the security of his love for you, you need more and you're gonna love less. And so, 
Man, I want you to hear the approval of God the Father as he looks upon you through the lens of his own son because no matter, no matter what you struggle with, no matter how sinful you may be, in Jesus Christ you are as white as snow, perfectly righteous before God, and there is no greater approval than that. Paul's cure to, to our accusers takes your breath away. I love how he does it here in these verses. Paul runs from these accusations into the op open, loving arms of his Savior. So what is the cure? Verse 33a, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 33b, it is God who justifies. I gave you a bunch of verses you can look up on your own and study as you work through the growing notes. But here's your next fill in the blank. He declares me acceptable for fellowship with him. That's a bigger statement than... Uh, then you have any idea of. It's just, that's, a, that's an amazing, monumental, powerful statement there. It is God who justifies. He declares me acceptable for fellowship with him. Uh, here's what I want you to do. Turn to the folks sitting next to you and ask them this question. See if you can uh, answer this question. Um, is God a God of law or a God of love? Is God a God of law or a God of love? Real quick, do that. Discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay, real quick. So, uh, how many said that he's a god of law? God of law? Law? Okay, show of hands. Okay, nobody, nobody. Okay, thank you. There's a few here, okay. How many said he's a God of love? Love, show of hands. Okay. How many would say that he's both? Show of hands. Oh, look at you. Some of you didn't vote, okay? Some of you didn't vote. And you're just, you're just too nervous about that, aren't you, huh? But no, he's both. He's actually, the answer is both. He's both. Because you see, if God is not a God of law, justice, there's no hope for the world. How else will wrong be punished? This, this place is a mess, by the way. You know that, don't you? Okay, it's, it's pretty crazy a mess. And so if God is not a God of law, justice, there's no hope for the world. How else will wrong be punished? But if God is not a God of love, mercy, and grace, there's no hope for you and I. How else can we be forgiven? So here's what's fascinating about the gospel. And this, is, this got a hold of my heart years ago, and I've just never gotten over this. And I still don't get over it to this day because it's just, it's part of God's grace. And I don't want you to ever get over this. And if you've gotten over it, it's because you don't really understand it. And the more you understand it, the more it'll just grab a hold of your heart. He doesn't condone our sin and he doesn't compromise the standard. But this is what he does. He assumes our sin and sentences himself. And on the cross... His holiness is honored, that's the law, and our sin is punished and we are redeemed. That's his love. That's crazy. See, we are, we are not acceptable to God because we actually become righteous practically righteous. We become actually righteous, practically righteous because we are acceptable to God. Don't reverse that. The basis of your sanctification, you're becoming practically righteousness, more like Christ. The basis of that is your justification. So if, like I said, if you're acting out, 
doing stupid stuff, saying stupid things. We all do that. It's called sin. It's because you don't understand. You're a child of God. You're not living in the reality of how much he loves you. You don't understand that he declares me acceptable for fellowship with him. Listen to what J.I. Packer says, theologian. He says, to justify in the Bible means to declare. Boom. Happens in a moment when I put my faith in, in Christ. To declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. I love that. That's great. He declares me acceptable for fellowship with him. And how does he do that? Look at this. So verse 34, who is to condemn? Verse 34 again. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then he begins to kind of run through a list here. There's a list of four. One, two, three, four that are just stunning. He died in my place for my sins. He died in my place for my sins. Now, Fill in the blank. Look up here. Look up here. Listen to me. He died in your place for your sins. Your sin debt paid in full. That's astounding. That is overwhelming. Your sins will never, ever, ever be held against you. You stand before him completely righteous. You have access to the throne room of God. You have a relationship with God not based on your performance but based on the performance of Jesus. Oh my goodness. Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we could forever cry out, Abba, Father. I mean, that's, that's powerful. Listen to me. If from this point on, nothing ever went right in your life, and your life just went crazy off the rails, and you know what I'm saying, just terrible suffering and difficulty, it doesn't matter. You've got him. You've got him. He died on the cross for you. You have a relationship with God. That's the sweetest thing about, about God, about our, our, our knowing him and about the grace of God. I, I wrote this down and we talked about it a couple weeks ago. There is nothing greater that God could do for you than to reconcile you to himself. And there's no greater gift that he could give to you than the gift of himself. We have him in our life. But see, a lot of us live like we don't really believe that because we just, I mean, between suffering and sin, we struggle. And so that's why after this series, we're going to spend the, the whole next series, we're going to do a series that's calling it Thrive and it's Habits of Grace. How do you get that stuff down in your heart? Because yeah, it's a concept. It's right up here. We've gone through Romans 8. I'm not as delighted in this Romans 8 as Pastor Ray is. It's pretty obvious. He's kind of... <laughs> kind of crazy man up there, but I'd like my heart to be that crazy. So how do I get there? I'm going to teach you how to get there. It's through spiritual disciplines, habits of grace, thrive. That's what we, we've got to work it deep within our heart. And that's, that's what we're going to do here because that's, that's it. But see, 
He died in my place for my sins. You despise his sacrifice when you try to add to his work by beating yourself up for your sins, wallowing in guilt and shame. See, we honor him when we believe in our forgiveness. How many, like me, you were raised in a church where there was a lot of guilt and shame heaped up on you? In fact, that's how they motivated you. In fact, you found yourself getting saved every week. Yeah, there's a number of you that, man, I'll tell you what, it took me a decade to just get grace, to really understand grace, to work grace down into my heart. Because, uh, because we were the we were kind of church, you don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. You guys have heard that before. And, <laughs> and so we didn't even go to movies. And so the very first movie that I went to, I was 18 years old, snuck out. Don't tell my mom, she's at the women's retreat. And, uh, but I snuck out and I went to American Graffiti. And I was so nervous throughout that whole movie, I thought, if Jesus comes back, I'm going to hell for all eternity. <laughs> and it didn't make sense to me, I'm going to hell for all eternity for going to American Graffiti? So that was kind of the early stages of like trying to work this out, trying to understand this. Like, I'm going to hell for American Graffiti? It's not even that good of a movie. It's not worth hell. But there was more to it, and I had to understand that. But there was, I mean, it was guilt and shame. By the way, let me just say this. You should never, ever be motivated to live a virtuous moral life out of guilt and shame or out of fear, that would be guilt and shame, or pride. By the way, there are churches right here in the valley. These are big churches. It's very subtle, but they will motivate you, and some of them will use guilt and shame, especially when they're passing the plate. That's why we don't pass the plate. That, we don't want you to be motivated out of reluctance or uh, grudgingly. We want you to understand the love of Christ and then give out of an overflow of that. But they'll use that. But some of them have kind of graduated from that as if this is better, but now they use pride. And it's so subtle. You want to be a part of the winning team? Yeah, you do. Hang out with us because we're the best. We're the best game in the neighborhood. We're the best game in Arizona. Yeah, it's, it's called pride, folks. Here's what should motivate us. Our virtuous behavior is a heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ. He died in my place for my sins. Of course I want to live for him. Of course. And so don't get caught in wrong motivation it's, it's called common virtue, fear and pride. True virtue is love. And so this is what I found in my own life and the life of others. We shame others because we feel shame. When you're around people, have you ever been around people that put a lot of shame on you? Oh, you can do better than that. Oh, if you don't start doing this, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you ought. And they use that. That's shame. They've got shame. That's why they're shaming you. We hurt others because we're hurting. We are unforgiving because we haven't experienced his forgiveness of us. Listen, the most forgiving people on this planet ought to be people like you and I who have encountered the forgiveness of the Son of Jesus, the Son of God through Jesus Christ who has died for us. He gave his life for us. He has forgiven. So when I struggle with, with unforgiveness and bitterness, I've got to come back to the cross. I've got to come back and say, wait, 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 wait. I am out of touch with how much you've forgiven me because right now I don't want to forgive them. So, Lord, help me to see that. Help me to experience that. Now, I've had this happen, too. People have said this. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Have you ever heard someone say that? Let me, uh, 
Let me give you a quote from C.S. Lewis. If God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it's like setting up ourselves as a higher tribunal than him, than God, a higher court system than God. And by the way, that's blasphemous. Like you have a higher standard than God? What that is, is it called idolatry. Somehow you've set some kind of standard, some kind of achievement, some kind of accomplishment, something that you've acquired that you needed to have that you can't live without and you've let yourself down. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The creator of the universe has forgiven you of all your sins. Do you understand that? You obviously don't because you're still holding something in that you feel like you still have lived way below whatever standard that might be. He has forgiven us. Okay, now, we're almost finished. We've got to knock the rest of this out. So verse... Uh, 34C, more than that, who was raised. I mean, I love how he says that. He says, so Christ Jesus is the one who died, as if that wasn't enough. It's like, oh my goodness, he died for me? And more than that, more than that? Yes, more than that, who was raised. Here's the next fill in the blank. He conquered sin, Satan, and death. He conquered sin, Satan, and death. He proves, it proves, the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he is. It is God stamping paid in full on our sins. It means resurrection power is within us, Romans 8, 11. It means no death for us, John eleven twenty five. 25. Then verse 34D, who is at the right hand of God? So he's continuing to kind of unpack this. So, so Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. What does that mean? He rules and has the final word on everything and everyone. It's talking of his sovereignty, divine sovereignty. So here's, here's what you need to understand about divine sovereignty is that my plans have a limit. Your plans have a limit. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. So you can plan all day long, but you need to bounce them off of God. But even in that planning, sometimes he's gonna limit what you're gonna be able to accomplish. And you gotta be cool with that. You gotta understand and believe in his loving, wise control of your life. That's part of his sovereignty. He's the one that ultimately calls those shots. But not only do my plans have a limit, but my problems have a purpose. Romans 8, 28. He's sovereign. So he takes the bad and works it for my good. But also, not only do my plans have a limit, my problems have a purpose, but my prayers have an impact. So as I was praying for the women up on the mountain this weekend, I know that they were meeting with God. I know that they were being spiritually renewed. Why? How do I know it? God's sovereign. God works as a result of our prayers. James 4, 2, we have not because we ask not. James 5, 16, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. But also, here's the last one, is that my sins will be punished either in Christ or by me. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So through his first coming to this earth, he came to bear our judgment. If I commit my life to him, he bore my judgment, and therefore I don't have to face God's judgment. But if you reject him with his second coming, you will face judgment. He will bring judgment. Verse 34, who indeed is interceding for us? Here's the last fill in the blank. He knows and cares and his grace is sufficient. We're almost done. Let me read to you this. He's interceding for us. This is a wonderful quote from Robert Murray McShane. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. I love that. Now, let me end 
It's a bit of a lengthy quote. It'll take me about 20, 30 seconds to read through it, but since by God's grace, since by grace God forgives, it makes no sense to hide, excuse, or shift the blame when you are faced with your sin. This is from David Tripp, New Morning Mercies, July the 27th. Listen to what he says. Why would you, so this is part of the application. There's plenty of application here, and as you walk out of here and as you think about it later on today and throughout this week and as you go through the growing us, you need to be asking yourself, God, what are you wanting to speak to me through this? How do you want to transform my life? Here's some of that application. Why would you and I work so hard to hide or deny what has been fully, completely, and eternally forgiven? Why would we work so hard to pretend that we are something less than sinners when the message of the gospel is that Jesus loves and accepts sinners? Why would we hide in guilt when Jesus has fully borne our guilt? Why would we allow ourselves to be motivated by shame when Jesus willingly carried our shame? Why would we construct a false facade of righteousness when Jesus has given his righteousness over to our account? Why would we fear God's wrath when Jesus took the full brunt of God's anger for us on the cross? Why would we care what others will think of us if we're honest about our sin when the one who holds our destiny in his hand has accepted us as if we had never sinned? Why deny who we are and what we need when full provision has been made? Why act as if we're something that we're not when grace has met us right where we are? Why would you defend yourself when a loved one points out a wrong or excuse yourself when you are caught? Why in the face of wrong would you work to soften the pain of conviction by debating the Holy Spirit's gracious promptings? Why act as if there is no hope for people like us when our Savior has conquered sin and death for us? Here's the last one. Why act as if no one would understand when we have been given a faithful and understanding high priest in Jesus who is sympathetic with all of our weaknesses? Let's pray. So Father God, there there is no sin so small that it doesn't deserve judgment but there is no sin so big that it can bring judgment upon those who truly repent. We know that all have sinned and fall short of living for your glory and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we acknowledge our sins and believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we confess Jesus as our Savior and Lord. If you've never done that before, that would be, that would be a good time right now to do that. Make a confession of faith. Give your life to him so that you can begin to live your life for him. Just take a moment and do that. Acknowledge your sins. I acknowledge my sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I confess him. I give him my life. Confess him as my Savior, my Lord. So, Father, as as the accusers scream that we are condemned, may the cross of Christ drown it out that we are eternally accepted, infinitely forgiven, and richly supplied with everything we'll ever need to face anything in this life for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.